Good morning, everybody. I really want to say happy Ash Wednesday, but I don't know, that doesn't quite work. But we can say that in the hopeful sense of the resurrection. There you go. So let's jump in. We're going to say a prayer and then start with chapter 28. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, on this Ash Wednesday, we ask that you open our hearts and minds to remember our faithfulness to you. You have made promises before us and to us, and we ask that on this Ash Wednesday, when we remember that we are mortal, we are reminded that your love is eternal, and that in your love, we are as well. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have one question that I will get to next week because I want to go ahead and get into chapter 28. Chapter 28 is really only divided into two sections. So that's why we had a little extra time to do podcasts this morning. The first is Jacob's wife. And the second is Jacob's dream. We begin chapter 28 by looking at the very last verses of chapter 27. So if you look at chapter 27, verse 46. Chapter 27, verse 46. I'm sorry, 26, 46. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women such as these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? We'll start there today. Remember that Esau has already married twice and he has married Hittite women. And those Hittite women are not of the right bloodline. You know, we talked a lot about the right person to marry. Abraham knew this, which is why he sent for Isaac to have a wife back in his homeland of Ur. Isaac received, effectively, an arranged marriage with Rebekah. And their two sons should have married in that bloodline as well. But Esau did not. Esau went off and married two Hittite women. And so Rebekah has worked hard to make sure that her favorite son is the heir. And so when Rebekah says at the very end of chapter 26, 7, 27, I was right, it was 27, I wrote this wrong, 27. When Rebekah says at the very end of chapter 27, what good is my life if Jacob... (laughs) Someone figured out the podcast. I heard it. Um, When Rebecca says, what good is my life if Jacob marries one of these women of the land? What she's really saying is, I have worked really hard duping my own husband to make sure that my favorite child is the one that's going to inherit that promise. And it will not work if he doesn't marry right. That's really what Rebecca's saying here. So Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, we've got to make sure Jacob marries right because even though Isaac is likely still upset about being duped to give his blessing to Jacob and not Esau, Isaac also agrees that Jacob is supposed to marry right, that Esau probably should have married well within the bloodline and didn't. And so Isaac agrees and they send Jacob back to where Rebecca is from, to see her brother Laban, to try and find the right kind of wife. So look at chapter 28. 28, 
28 verse 1. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, you shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Go at once to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and numerous that you may become a company of peoples. <laughs> so in this moment, Isaac is giving, what'd you say? Correct. Yes, see, so we're, because he's marrying right, right. So it is made explicit here. Remember that family tree with lots of diagonal lines that we drew a few weeks ago? Rebecca's brother Laban has daughters that they intend for Jacob to marry. And so these are first cousins, right? When Jacob ultimately marries, he will be married and have children with his first cousins because they know those people, right? They trust those people. They kind of keep it in the family in a very legitimate way. It's security, it's money and wealth and prosperity. They're not trying to dilute all of those things. They're trying to keep it in the family. In this period of time, and in particular, and we talked about this with Isaac, where Abraham has gone and settled is way outside of his family place. God called him to go and do this, go and settle in a new place. And Abraham was faithful to God and did so, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a sense of insecurity in this new land. And so part of shoring up and making them feel a bit more secure is getting married to someone kind of in your circle, not geographic, but bloodline. Hittite, Canaanite, just these are basic, just read, not the right people, right? So it doesn't really matter where they came from. They come from the wrong place. What is interesting and what will be very um, pitiful is what Esau does. But so Jacob is sent away. He is sent on a long journey. This is not easy. And if we remember, Abraham did not send Isaac. Abraham sent a servant on behalf of Isaac. Isaac, though, sends Jacob. Why? It is almost certainly because Isaac's kind of mad at Jacob, right? This is, Jacob has not done this the right way. He has effectively duped his brother and then his father into becoming the heir. Now that happened. And so, yes, that is true, but it doesn't mean that Isaac's happy about it. And so Isaac sends Jacob off in a sense to get away from him right? We heard at the end of the last chapter, Esau was very angry. Esau was going to kill Jacob after their father died. And so either Isaac is angry, which he probably is, but Isaac also understands Jacob's the future. And so Jacob needs to live. And even if Isaac is mad, Jacob needs to be able to survive all of this. And so a less risky, it's really kind of the lesser of two evils, is having Jacob make this long journey. This journey is not an easy journey. This is not like they've got rest stops along the highway. They are kind of exposed to whoever they meet along the road. But it's likely that Isaac has perceived that risk as being a lesser risk than leaving Jacob with Esau. Okay, any questions about that? Yes. So, so Jacob duped twice. 
Esau once and Isaac once. So it's Jacob that has been the duper twice. Duper? <laughs> Birthright. <clears throat> okay. Good question. So I think it's fair to say that Esau may not have been duped. That Isaac, for sure, he was fooled, right? I mean, Jacob was explicit in dressing up in Esau's clothes and putting on the hair and all of that stuff. In my mind, deception can be more sophisticated than, say, a costume. And I think that Jacob deceived Esau in giving him that birthright because he effectively took advantage of someone who was too simple. Um, I don't want to say Esau. <laughs> um, what do I want to say? Esau is simple. Maybe Esau's a little slow. I mean, maybe Esau's not quite as sharp. I mean, he's definitely not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I mean, he is not. He is not sophisticated in understanding the way things work like Jacob. And I have to think Jacob knew that. I mean, here there are these twin brothers. They've been raised together. Jacob gets that Esau's not sophisticated, that Esau does not understand nuance, does not perhaps perceive of decision points that have lasting impact. You know, I mean, we, we know there are some children who just cannot conceive of that, right? We give them special attention in special ways because they just cannot learn and perceive the world the same as most of the other people. And I would venture a guess that Esau falls into that category. So even though Jacob may not have been as explicit as clothes and costume and all that sort of stuff, that Jacob took advantage of Esau, to me, is still deception. I think the inten the, Jacob's intention was to get something from Esau that he should not have gotten. And so I call, so dupe may not may be too strong a word, but as a deceiver, I think Jacob has deceived twice. One in a very kind of tangible way, and one in, I think, almost an unfair, unkind way ugly way because he took advantage of Esau. And we're going to see a bit of Esau's kind of evidence of that opinion of Esau in the next verses. Oh, that's a good question. So why did Jacob and Rebekah allow Esau to marry the Hittite women? I think certainly Rebekah was just as happy as pie that Esau married the Hittite women because that undermines Esau's authority undermines his leadership capacity because Rebecca totally knew Rebecca is no one's victim, right? Rebecca is perfectly of sound mind right here. And I think that Rebecca gets, she traveled to marry Isaac because she knew it was important for Isaac to marry right. So she gets that, right? She was not victimized here. And so Rebecca gets that if she wants Jacob to be the heir, any way they can undermine Esau is a good thing. And so permitting, allowing, we do not know the context around Esau's marriages. We're just simply told Esau took two Hittite wives. 
I have to think that Esau somehow communicated this to the family. So did Isaac approve of it? Or maybe was Isaac gone and Rebecca approved of it? Did neither approve and he just went off and married these women? We don't know. Um, it does seem very plausible that Rebecca would have been very happy to grease the wheels of Esau's Hittite marriages, for sure, because it just helps her case. And so Rebecca knows right there, she's got to get Jacob married right because Esau has undermined his authority. Now, if Jacob were to go off and marry Hittite or Canaanite women, it puts them more closely on the same plane. So Jacob does not seem as apparently the proper heir of the covenant. But if she can keep Jacob married well, then everything is falling in line for Jacob to be the one who receives God's covenant. So we'll move on. Let's look real quickly at just a little note. This is really more about Esau than Jacob, but on chapter 28, verse 8. When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael, all right? So Ishmael, their uncle, and took Mahalath, daughter of Abraham's son Ishmael, and sister of Neboet, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So in my mind, this is a very kind of bless your heart moment because Esau, Esau heard this and he was like, okay, so the Canaanite Hittite wives, not good enough. So Esau said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go marry my cousins who then would be in the proper bloodline, except no Ishmael went off and married the wrong people. So Ishmael's children are not the right bloodline either. And Esau tried. Oh, you know, right. And so this to me is an example of Esau just doesn't quite get it, right? He kind of gets it. Like, okay, so my wives, they're not right. Oh, I know. Well, Ishmael is my father's brother, that's the right kind of person, but Ishmael's mother was not Sarah. And Ishmael went down into the Arabian area and married a woman that's not Semitic either. So, I mean, he's like doubly not okay, but to Esau, that made great sense. So Esau just doesn't quite, he just does not quite get it. Okay. Bless his heart. So let's move on. Chapter 28, verse 10. So Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So we have transitioned now into Jacob's dream, the second part of this chapter. Jacob is now on the journey, right? Jacob is on his way back to where Abraham came from, where Rebekah's brother Laban still lives. And on that journey, he stops in a place that we will, we will find out in just a minute is the same one of the places Abraham stopped in his journey and actually camped. And when he goes to sleep, he has this amazing dream. So a few notes. Dreams are very important in the Bible. Although, yes, there are some examples where God seems to speak literally aloud with people. Remember that in our Genesis journey, everything that comes before Abraham is 
kind of effectively mythology, right? We talked a lot about how those stories are true, but they are not really historic. When we get to Abraham, we really do begin to merge a bit more from that both true and historic. And so we see some of those kind of mythic, mystical moments, like God walking through the garden and having a chat with Adam and Eve, now becomes Jacob falls asleep and has a dream. There is a shift away from what seems too fantastic to something that seems possible, right? So people telling the story would say, well, we're not really literally hearing God's voice in the sky around us. But don't we receive some kind of vision from God? So don't some people receive visions? And when do they receive visions? When they're asleep. So dreams become very important. This is the first kind of big dream that we see in the Bible. And Jacob's dream is quite vivid. He sees this ladder going up to heaven with angels descending and ascending. So let's pause and say, this word ladder is salam in Hebrew, and it only occurs here in the entire Bible. It is an odd word that could be translated in a number of ways, ladder, stairway, highway. So as you've heard, you know, any of those words used in popular culture, poetry, music, any of that stuff, all of those translations are valid. So we're not entirely sure what this looks like, but we typically translate it ladder because I think people have preferred this verticality. You know, a highway doesn't go vertical. It would be like a ramp, right? That would work, but there's some, something interesting about heaven touching earth right there. It goes straight down. And in essence, what Jacob is witnessing, what he perceives to be witnessing, is a place, a thin place, where heaven and earth are connected. And so he begins to perceive that this place is somehow super sacred. However, throughout the centuries, a different kind of interpretation has, you know, at least been popular, which is Jacob glimpsed something that is true everywhere, that he really was able to see what we can't see, but is happening all around us, that heaven and earth really do connect over and over again, all around us, and that we, in fact, have these kinds of angel presences all around us that we don't often sense, and that Jacob just simply saw in this one moment at this one time what actually happens constantly, all places, all the time. Take that for what you will, but I kind of like that interpretation. All right, any questions about that before we move on to his, his conversation with God? So this, this is Jacob's ladder, and do you know, I was so bummed because I meant to bring, my two girls have, we were down in San Antonio a week and a half ago, um, and they discovered Cat's Cradle, you know, the little string between your hands, and they have been super obsessed with it. And now they race each other to do Jacob's Ladder. So now I know how to do it, and I meant to bring it to impress you. You know, like <laughs> Jacob's Ladder. And I forgot it at home. I didn't have any yarn in my office or else next week, next week I'll bring it. Um, 
And so I am not as fast as they are, but I'll work on it. Um, so yes, Jacob's ladder. This is Jacob's ladder. This is that moment. This is the stairway to heaven, highway to heaven. I mean, you know, any of those pop references, this is where that comes from. This is that moment when Jacob sees this vision. Jacob will have two very important kind of mystical experiences on this journey. On the way to Laban, Jacob has this latter vision. On the way from Laban, Jacob wrestles with God. So Jacob's becoming a bigger deal. Um, if you think about when, you know, Abraham had a lot to do with God. God kind of came around. There were angels that came around. God talked with Abraham. Abraham made deals with God about what not to destroy for good people. You know, all that kind of stuff. Then you get Isaac. And Isaac, even though Isaac has some storylines, basically Isaac doesn't have any storylines that has to do with just him. I mean, he's effectively, his stories are either with Abraham or with Jacob. There's that one little moment where he meets Rebecca. Otherwise, Isaac is kind of a, kind of nothing. I mean, yes, Isaac is, he's almost the bridge from Abraham to Jacob. Abraham and Jacob, the presence of their stories is so much more significant than Isaac. And so there are lots of opinions about why that happened. I will tell you one of them, and I will preface this by saying, I don't really think this is true, but there have been some suggestions that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all patriarchs of different tribal groups under the umbrella of the Israelites. And that in the exile, those stories were effectively merged together to become father, son, and grandson. That's kind of an interesting idea because to me, it makes, it, it makes Isaac's disinterest more acceptable. But I don't know, that I don't need that in my life. So I'm fine with it being, you know, just the way the story is. Yes. So is Jacob's ladder Interesting. Um, is Jacob's ladder related to the communion of saints? I'll answer that by saying, I had to say I believe in, as if it's not true if I don't. I like the concept of angels. I think angels sound good to me. I have no problem with that. And so I guess I'd say I believe in them. Um, so the way I interpret this personally is that this is a bit more angel angelic, not perhaps that there are deceased people's spirits going up and down the ladder, which I think is more the implication of your question. I think communion of saints, I think there's a difference between humans who have died and angels. We tend to fudge this because it sounds sweet and it makes a good greeting card um, where, you know, God needed another angel or whatever people say, um, which never say that to someone when they lose a loved one. I can't even, I can't even stand that. That's one of those moments where like all my pastoral sensibilities go away and I'm like, shut up. You know, I mean, that is not, that is not okay. Um, I think there's a difference between angels that are, in a sense, non-human. I mean, the way I understand angels is that they, they were not human. They are a different kind of spirit. And then we have humans who die and who 
are in communion with God in some way that we cannot quite perceive, but we believe is a potential for us in the future. And I keep those two groups separate. So I don't, I've never really considered that people we love and see no longer are somehow angels. Now, are they, are they present and connected to us? Yes. But I've always understood angels as being kind of God's, those are God's people, God's servants, God's whatever you want to say. Um, and interestingly, you know, we are St. Michael. Michael is really the only saint that wasn't human. Um, we, we say St. Gabriel, and, but St. Gabriel is not, we don't really refer to Gabriel's sainthood like we refer to Michael's sainthood. I don't know why that is. Um, but you've got, typically saints are human with that exception. Um, Michael's the one that's not. How does Michael get to be a saint? I don't know. Um, I kind of feel like you got had to have been human to be saint. But okay, Michael's an archangel. Good enough. Like, I don't think you need to be a saint too. Um, but whatever. We've inherited that and that's fine. Um, so I keep those two groups separate in my mind. Either questions or thoughts? All right, let's keep going. Verse 13, the Lord stood beside Jacob and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We'll stop there. So God in this dream shows up. God explicitly passes on, transfers this promise, this covenant to Jacob, one that had been passed from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. God begins here with a particular phrase that will now be repeated multiple times throughout the Bible, which is, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And it, there was an interesting note in the commentary. <clears throat> this is not as if I were to introduce myself to someone because that person doesn't know me. Jacob's got it, right? God, he knows. <clears throat> so when God shows up and says, I am the Lord, it's like someone who is obviously well-known claiming their own identity. So there is a weightiness here. God's not telling Jacob something he doesn't know. God's reminding Jacob of something he may forget with all of the other stuff going on around him. God doesn't show up and just tell him a thing. God starts by saying, remember who you're talking to, right? Which is important because this is not a kind of promise that is flippant, right? There is a weightiness about receiving this promise. This is not something cheap and easy. If Jacob is now the heir to this covenant, there is a huge amount of pressure that goes with it, a huge amount of responsibility that Jacob now inherits from God. Interestingly, let's talk, mm, I'm gonna wait for that. So, Let's keep going to verse 16. 
Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at the first. So in this moment, Jacob's response to God is immediately just ecstatic, right? I mean, he wakes up and he knows that was real and he gets super energetic and he wants to mark that place as something holy. And so he calls it Bethel. I think at one point we talked about this, but in Hebrew, El or El, E-L, means God. So that is a, an ancient way of describing God that is a particular name for God, that is not Yahweh, that is God. And so Beth-El is house of God. So if you ever see Beth, that means house. So Beth-Lehem is the house of bread. Lehem is bread. Beth-El is the house of God. And so Jacob really makes a big deal about this. I mean, he says, this is it. This is God's house. This is where heaven touches earth right here. And he sets up sort of a monument or something that would be remembered as an important moment and an important place. Look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. There is a lot to unpack in those verses. First, let's start with, what is the difference between a contract and a covenant? We know all about contracts. Contracts are things that are based on a give and a take, right? So our cell phone contract, we pay when we get cell phone service. We pay our electricity bill, a contract, when we get electricity. There is a common understanding that if one person delivers on a promise, the other person will deliver back, right? So someone gives us the thing we want, we pay them, and on and on and on. A covenant is different. A covenant is mutual, and a covenant is not based on performance. This is a hard concept for us. Covenants are more like what we see in, I will say, traditional marriages, where there is a commitment made to a person regardless of performance, regardless of delivering anything, because it's a covenant with obvious caveats of things like abuse. Marriages are meant to be, period, for good, because that's the kind of thing a covenant really is. And we've lost a sense of that sort of commitment in our modern age. But if you remember back to my discussion about Isaac and Rebecca's marriage, and I sort of defended the idea of an arranged marriage, Part of that is because marriage has historically, up until, I don't know, the last 50 years, it's really been an arrangement that was mutually beneficial. And the commitment to one another was for good. 
not necessarily for love. Love is nice, I mean, great, but up until recently, that's not what marriage was. Marriage was effectively an arrangement that helped you remain secure. And so this covenantal idea is one that the people writing this story would understand because you enter into a covenant, that covenant will not be broken. You don't choose to get out of a covenant. A covenant is broken upon death. I mean, we even say that in the marriage ceremonies. You will not, you will not be separated until death. Although we certainly allow more flexibility with that now. And I mean, I would say there are totally valid reasons for marriages to be dissolved. I would hope though that we enter a marriage with the idea that it will not be. That's the point. And even those of you who are remarried, I hope the remarriage was entered into with that same idea so that there is this very genuine, deep covenant that you have with a person. Interestingly, this is something that is maintained with a church. So some of you who have been in leadership here may know this. Rectors and churches covenant, which means I am not an employee, nor are you my employer. It's an odd thing because we don't do this very often in our lives. There is a mutuality about the agreement to do ministry together, which means I actually can't be fired. It also means I cannot quit. So it's both and because we commit to each other. And even though obviously those kinds of covenants dissolve for perfectly good reasons, it is intentionally meant to be something that is not fickle or easy. It is something that's meant to be real binding and that only after prayerful consideration and whatever, um, that it would be dissolved. And so here, Jacob is receiving this covenant promise from God. Jacob does not understand. So Jacob says what? If he's, he's off in the wrong direction with the first word. He says, if, nope, a covenant is not if. Jacob sets up this, if this, then that, right? If you do this, I'll do that. Nope, that is not what God wants from us. By the way, that's not what God wants from us, but it is so very human. Every one of us in this room, me included, have found ourselves in this kind of understanding of our relationship with God, even if accidentally, because we cannot help it. That's human nature. And it is part of our job, our responsibility to one another to help us not be here, right? I've told you before, I hate flying and I totally make a deal with God every time I get on the plane. And I know that's not how it works, but I'm saying it anyway, because whatever. Um, and so that sort of idea of if these things happen, then I will be faithful. No, no. That is not what a covenant is. For example, Jacob gets down at the very end in verse 22 and says, if all these things, then I'm going to worship you and I will give one-tenth to you. So I should note, this is not technically the rootedness of a tithe. That comes from Genesis verse 14 with Abraham. But this is perhaps the first example of an explicit 
if this then that, kind of one-tenth. Obviously, one-tenth, and what scholars think is that the idea of giving a tenth was a historically good number. It's not a seventh, it's not a twelfth, it's not a fifteenth, whatever it is. A tenth meant gratitude, right? There was a, an exchange of gratitude. And Jacob kind of gets, of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. So Jacob is beginning to understand that everything we get is from God and God wants us to give back a tenth. Or I've heard some preachers say, God gives everything you have to you and he lets you keep 90%, right? <laughs> I mean, I think those kinds of ideas are not meant to be contractual. And so this is I, I promise I won't get too deep into a stewardship moment, um, but <laughs> part of what I see as our responsibility to each other is to get us all over the hump of limited gratitude to God. I have literally hundreds of conversations in my career with people who feel like they don't have enough to give anything meaningful, right? People who give $100, $500, $1,000, and they feel very good about that because church has been at some point contractual and charitable, right? Charity. Church is not charity. And I've said to many people, I've even preached it, that the church does not need your money. You need to give. It is good for your soul. It is good for our souls because what God has offered us is something covenantal. God's promise to us is not contractual. So why would our promise to God be contractual? And this is not an easy decision point to make because it is almost certainly for most adults a point when they break away from what they have been taught. Very few of us were taught what I would consider genuine sacrificial giving. And if you were, good for you. I was, so I, I do not take credit for having figured this out. Most people I have learned were not. And so to ever get over the hump of giving in a way that is good, but not sacrificial, is really hard. Because we tend to think, if we give too much, we won't have enough. And so what some churches have figured out is what we call the prosperity gospel, which you hear from lots, I won't name names, where effectively what people say is if you give, God will give you more in return. So give a lot more and God will give you even more in return. And what they miss is something very important. When you give, God's not giving you more in return. What you get is a peace in your soul that you always have enough. And that is what is so challenging, especially in our community, because there's always this sense of lack of what we don't have, what we don't get, what others have that we can't get. And that is sick. And I don't use that word lightly. It is an illness that is like a virus that eats away at us from the inside out. And if we don't commit to something different, we will succumb to that illness. And that's really what the church is best at, at its best, is helping us all realize that no matter what we give, we will always have enough. 
because we find the peace that passes all understanding. And that's what Jacob has missed. And he's got a nugget in there. He will figure it out, but it will take him a while to figure it out. And for us, as we read through this chapter, I want us to wrestle like Jacob literally will wrestle with God. I want us to wrestle with this idea of the contract and the covenant. Are we actually experiencing God contractually? Or can we, because we can, do we want to get to the place where God is now in a covenant with us? Because that's really how we change. That's really how we are transformed is by getting to the place where God becomes not a contract that if we get, then we'll give, but one where we give because we already know we have gotten everything. Happy Ash Wednesday. <laughs> I hope to see you all at church and make sure Monica's in the back if you'd like him help with your podcast. Say your prayers each day. It'll help. See you all next week.